Welcome to our podcast series Who's Universal, which Haus der Kulturen der Welt is hosting in the run-up to the White West Conference series. The conference series is co-organized by Anna Teixeira Pinto, Kada Atia and Anselm Franke. In this episode, which was recorded in April 2021, Anna Teixeira Pinto is in conversation with the artist Rashkamal Kalon. Rashkamal Kalon is an American artist based in Berlin. In her practice, she recuperates drawing and painting as sites of aesthetic and political resistance. Drawing on history, archives and literature, her research submits archival resources to a process of creative transformation that results in sensual, humorous, formally rigorous artworks that address the reclamation of humanity for racialized, gendered and indigenous communities targeted for destruction. Welcome, Hashkamal. Thank you. So perhaps we could start by talking a little bit uh, about your practice and uh, <clears throat> your biography and, uh, you know, like the reasons that brought you to Berlin. Um, if we have to begin, a, these are really big questions. Um, so my biography, um, well, I was born in the U.S., um, My parents left Punjab, India in 1974, and my family was part of um, this uh, process of immigration that took place in the U.S., of liberalized immigration policies that uh, enabled um, a lot of the third world, um, the educated classes of the third world to migrate to the West and into the U.S. and California specifically. I grew up in California, um, went to school in both public and private uh, art schools and have lived uh, and then moved to New York um, where I was at the Whitney program. And then eventually I moved to Berlin, um, not for my work, but rather for uh, love. You uh, have been working together with VAV and this is how I first came across your work. Uh, I would. I would be very interested in discussing very briefly the series uh, about Yugoslavia that is now on display here in Berlin at NBK. It's an important project that I began in 2018. Um, at that time, I was working on um, on, eth on ethnographic museum collections, um, colonial photography, um, and specifically was working with um, an anthropology, a German anthropology book called Die Fokker der Erde. Um, at the moment in 2018, when VHB came to me and asked if I would work with an archive that had recently been opened in Pula called the Sense Archive. And this is um, the work Crimes Tribunal Archive um, of the war crimes that took place in the um, in the Yugoslavian civil wars, um, and I didn't know the archive, and I had very limited actual knowledge of um, of the Yugoslavian civil war and the Balkan region in general. Um, yet I had worked with Behave um, a number of times. We had a kind of long term friendship and professional relationship. And I trusted them, and I think that they trusted me in terms of my previous work with violence, state archives, um, and um, sort of creating um, drawings and paintings that um, try to transform some of these um, state forms of violence. 
And so they approached me and asked me, which was um, both flattering and humbling, and I accepted. Um, and I began this process the way I began a lot of my projects, which was to um, uh, to do a number of, um, there's several months where I, um, I only read about the Balkans, about uh, the Civil War, about different perspectives and different um, uh, points of view on the, on the war. And, and this went on, um, and the idea was that I was going to create new work in response to the archive for the 2018, um, it was a second industrial lab in Biennial. And um, as we got closer to the Biennial, I was um, continued to read. I was often looking at uh, material um, related to mass grave exhumation reports um, and quite um, bureaucratic yet um, horrific uh, documents relating to and accounting for the violence that took place um, in, in different parts of uh, the former Yugoslavia. And I guess because of the work um, that I had put aside, which is this work on colonialism and um, ethnographic uh, portraiture um, that I had been working on when they um, invited me to work on this project, I started actually to think about the Balkans through this lens. So how had the Balkans been othered? Um, what was the othering process by Western Europe towards this region? Um, and this led me to look for images from the 19th century, studio portraits, um, folk costumes. And in the process, I stumbled across the work of Vladimir Kirin, who was a Croatian illustrator who both collaborated with the Nazis and had his career rehabilitated under Tito. And in the 1950s, he produced a set of um, uh, ethnographic, they were folkloric ethnic uh, costumes of the um, of different ethnic groups in the former Yugoslavia that was prim pr published and printed in the 1950s, and um, and so what I realized is that I wasn't going to um, what I wanted to do. What I found from the archive was that there's so much missing in archives like this that try to account for um, violence that took place. And essentially what's missing is this, uh, the emotional context of the, the loss um, and, uh, and the bodily response to this violence. And this is what I felt I needed to put back in. Um, and so rather than working with documents directly from the archive, I decided to work with Vladimir Kirin's illustrations I was able to purchase four of these five books um, uh, from an antiquarian bookseller in Germany. And I started to paint and draw directly into um, Kieran's illustrations, um, but infecting these picturesque rep uh, representations with um, the violence of the Civil War and the violence of these documents that I um, uh, that I had been researching. And so um, the imagery, uh, which is uh, his original imagery is uh, picturesque um, and quaint and, and romantic. And, and then inserted into that are images that deal with mass grave exhumations, forensic anthropology, um, weaponry. And, and all of that for me is about putting these kinds of disparate um, images together has to do with trying to form um, 
the possibility of making new meanings around how to process trauma and and um because it's a, it's the aspect of somehow political violence that is not dealt with um political violence for me is something that resides in my body it's it's something that i experience personally and um and so trying to basically talk through the body um to talk about larger cultural and political violence is sort of the larger frame of all of my work for the last 20 years one of the things that uh, uh, i remember you mentioning about your work was that uh, you felt that it appealed to scholars rather than to uh, curators or like people that uh, uh, work professionally in the art world and i was wondering uh, because i came from this generation that uh, was uh, basically trained to believe that uh, any kind of earnestness or sincerity was uh, or meant that the artist lacked sophistication or, you know, like that uh, you were a bit naive or you were a bit uh, provincial. And uh, I, I wonder if, uh, you know, like could uh, uh, let me know a little bit about uh, uh, how you experience that, and also like uh, if you do feel that uh, there's a, cer a certain market for cynicism and that uh, it's uh, difficult uh, to work sincerely or to work with sincerely within the contemporary art environment. It's a big question, and yes, I, I, there's a lot I could say about that. Um, I think. Recently, I had an exhibition at the Welt Museum um, called Staying with Trouble. In, it was up from 2017 to 2019. And um, I wrote about this exhibition um, because I was uh, tasked with... Um, I was tasked with a residency and to leave traces of my residency that would then be shown when the museum reopened rather than just doing my residency in 2016 and um making and making some work um i was really called by the men and women that i found in the archives the photographic archives that i was working with to um to make something more meaningful a more meaningful document and so um without a contract without any form of um mission other than my own need to work with this material, I spent the next 18 months forming a show that became very important to me called Staying With Trouble. And this work for me, I wrote about it later, that it was a kind of love letter that I wrote to um, not, not only to the museum, um, uh, but it was a love letter to these men and women in the archive. and. Um, and and to it was for me the most important exhibition I'd had to that moment, and it was really important that it took place inside this ethnographic museum as a um, a gesture of reclaiming the humanity of um, the people that I encountered there. Um, and so this is how I I work. Um, the project that you mentioned earlier with Yugoslavia. Um, was deeply emotional for me I, uh, and for the curators that commissioned it. Um, there is a way that I work that I think is not um, always common, but I have to say that 
I come from a, a working class background and I have not been trained in certain bourgeois codes of, um, of politeness, of, um, of learning what you're supposed to say and not say. And I think that honestly, that is my, my strength that I see now um, in the work that I'm able to make. Um, it stands out um, because I, um, uh, I risk, I guess, saying things that I find many of my peers are not saying, and I wish they were, because I think that art has this enormous, um, enormous power and potential, uh, both in terms of um, uh, a revolution in how we can see, and also in terms of giving us a language of resistance, um, the ability to tell stories. Um, that is so often um, left uh, untouched because of the, mar the market mechanisms that um, inhibit most of the contemporary art production that I see and that deeply disappoints me. I remember you uh, telling me that uh, uh, one friend told you that uh, you didn't succeed in the New York art scene because you had a poor person's aesthetic or that your work had too much of a poor person's aesthetic, which was something I found like extremely striking. And, uh, uh, you know, like it also made me think about, you know, like obviously we know that, but, you know, like in these moments it becomes really apparent how much, uh, you know, like the old aesthetics of the white cube is class coded. And uh, I, I was wondering if you could comment on that too. I have so many stories about this. I have so many, um, but uh, I begin first with the reference that you uh, refer to. Um, so a, a peer of mine, I had a, an important show when I was 30 years old in New York in the sort of the mainstream um, kind of Chelsea art world. Um, it was seen by everyone, um, Art Forum, Village Voice, New York Times, you know, it, on and on. It's a show that was incredibly um, controversial for that moment. It was in 2005. Uh, and I think at the time, Harvard had looked at the work and said that it was too sexual, too controversial and too political um, and that it would offend their students. Um, there was uh, this this peer of mine, because um, I was a bit surprised at the shock that I was encountering from the work. Um, and he explained to me that that I had, to quote him, he said, you know, you had a poor person's aesthetic all up in that show. And I asked him for to tell me what he meant. And what he explained to me was that when um, poor people have um, anything, any small patch of wall, um, they decorate it, they cover it with everything that is beautiful, that represents beauty to them. It's dense, it's full, and it's um, full of the things that um, make them happy and that they think is beautiful. And that's what my show was like. It, it was, but it was more than that, I think. It was, um, it also, this, um, work was very explicit in terms of sexual violence, but connecting that to histories of colonialism and people somehow couldn't put these things together, uh, bodily violence um, and, and colonial histories. And so this work, um, yeah, so th there, there's this. And 
but I have, yeah, there's so much to say about um, class because at the same time, other feedback that came back from the um, led me to understand for the first time that there's an implicit bias in the art world uh, towards, um, I guess what we had talked about, um, uh, this kind of austere, monochromatic, simplified um, uh, aesthetics that um, are not maximalist, they are not colorful, they are, um, they're everything other than that. Um, also, yeah, so, so th this led me to make a number of like actually experimentations in my work, thinking about how we read images, what is too much for people, what can they take in, how long, I mean, how long do they take to understand what is violence, how is violence read? And so this led me to think about visual languages, this particular body of work that shocked everyone, um, used illustration as a as a visual language. So then I started to experiment also with, um, you know, um, photorealism and dealing with more seductive surfaces that slowed down the reading and learning and thinking a lot about um, how we look, how we read images, and how do we come to understand and register violence. Um, and so I, I've been making, you know, for really for 20 years, a deep research into how images function um, and, and how, how we, and now more recently, how we can use them to talk back in a way that I want to talk back and, and in service of um, those that don't have voices or are not central, um, yeah. I was asking not because I want to engage in gratuitous polemics. It was just that I think it's interesting uh, to recall what it was like 10, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, at the moment, like now, uh, when everybody's talking about, uh, you know, like, well, I'm going to say cancel culture, of course, like, um, I... Uh, do not believe that uh, this is a thing. However, it's a term that is thrown around all the time to say that actually there is less space for you know public expression when actually uh, it feels to me that there is rather more space for public expression now. And that, uh, um, you know, like your experience uh, as an artist and the way uh, your work rubbed against the conventions of plasticity uh, of uh, what was deemed acceptable in the art world uh, is, or to my mind, illuminates uh, this trajectory and how actually uh, it became uh, uh, possible in the last couple of years to broach certain topics and subjects that were before considered off limits. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I moved to New York to do the Whitney program around 2001, two weeks before the September 11th attacks. So my um, <clears throat> time period then I was in New York um, uh, is in the early 2000s. And there was 
no, no space to talk about gender. There was no space to talk about um, race, colonialism. This was all something that had been sanctioned in the 90s somehow. And then by the 2000s with globalization, the ideas in the art world were that we had already covered that. It wasn't new. It wasn't contemporary. And as if um, oppression had stopped when globalization started. So this was this moment that I was entering the art world. It took me a long time to understand the mechanisms of, of how power functioned and privileged certain voices and certain types of art practices over others. Um, and um, yeah, and, and I think that um, it's, it's interesting how things have changed, yet they haven't. <laughs> I was looking at and was um, in conversation with artists. Like I was the studio assistant for Kara Walker in graduate school briefly. I um, worked with um, and had studio visits with people, you know, in, in relationships. Carrie James Marshall put me in my first show in New York. Um, and these were the people that I was looking at. Glenn Ligon, um, and, and, you know, um, there was space that kind of had opened up for practices and um, like those that were in the 90s. Um, and so, but by the time that I had, um, I was looking to them, um, thinking that the space had, that they had opened these spaces, but in fact, those spaces were just open for them at this one brief moment at the beginning of all of these conversations around globalization in the 90s that took place and then quickly closed. And so the art world that I encountered um, when I moved there to join the Whitney program was one um, that was both a reeling from the political reality of, um, of this post-September 11th war on terror um, and, um, and yeah, and somehow there was there um, there there was no desire to talk about uh, post-colonial uh, histories or politics or seeing that they were relevant to the present moment. Um, and so this is something that, as a young artist too, I was uh, pushing against uh, working on um, global histories of colonialism, but situating them within domestic histories of slavery and genocide that are internal to American history. And this was something that I was doing, but it, it was never understood and it was never, there was no space for that. Only recently has there been, you know, more recently work on how the U.S. is in particular, a settler colonial society and how it has influenced um, other um, things such as fascism and other uh, movements around the uh, around the globe, um, and and so things that I was instinctually trying to address in my work as an artist um, didn't have uh, any language or conversation or echo. And it was only after I really moved, uh, in my mid-30s, I moved to, um, to Berlin. And uh, here I have been able to develop um, both artistically and intellectually um, within a community um, that yeah that that somehow has enabled um me to um continue my work and 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 grow this work 
would it be fair to say that this might be the case because you are tapping into a particularly crucial uh, a subject like this articulation or this nexus between, uh, you know, like what you'd call processes of racial ascription at home and colonial violence abroad? And this is something that, uh, you know, like... Uh, all Western nations really take pains to obscure. And uh, you can see also, like, specifically within American history, that the governments, like uh, democratic governments, that tend to be more sensitive towards questions of race, you know, like inside uh, the US, are the ones that are usually more imperialistic and more aggressive abroad, uh, whilst Republicans do it the other way around. But uh, still, uh, you never had up to this moment, uh, you know, an acknowledgement uh, of uh, how these forces work in tandem. And also, like, uh, you never had, like... um, a progressive alliance, uh, neither in the U.S., neither in any of the other Western nations, that would be able to uh, tackle, you know, like what I would call are the both uh, legs of this question. You said that very well. Um, but for me, the, there was this moment um, in 2017 when I heard Jeremy Scale interview Nikhil Paul Singh about his book, and I got it immediately and read this uh, like with like a thirst because somehow this book, Race in America's Long War, was here was someone who had written everything I had been somehow grappling with in terms of a visual language and iconographies and histories and archives, um, and but somehow had um, spelled it out um, the the literal connections between um, uh, the American Indian Wars and how um, American foreign policy is formulated, um, and and vice versa, how um, you know uh, American foreign policy has then uh, come back into domestic policy to police poor um, uh, vulnerable communities w- uh, within the U.S. and this relationship and this um, history and legacy that is really not dealt with, um, but also what was also like this moment of, of just like, thank God, was, you know, to, to deal with um, what Marx got wrong and, and, and add it, you know, to deal with race and um, the, also um, capitalism and, and that the two things have to be thought together. Um, this is also something that, I mean, in terms of talking about the art world and what I find missing, this is what's missing. Critiques of diversity are allowed, um, but they are not allowed in the context of a critique of race and uh, capitalism. And this is what's so sorely missing. And this is what, for me, it's um, if we really want to talk about communities that are targeted for destruction, then you have to talk about capitalism as playing a vital and instrumental role in that process. And, and you know, it's I'm not a political scholar, but I, I often, I'm not reading aesthetic theory, I'm reading, you know, people like that, like Nikhil Posing or, or, um, or um, historians often, um, because I'm trying to, because I think, yeah, I'm trying to think a lot about how how stories are told, how histories are told, and who gets to tell them. 
I, I also have to admit I'm not reading aesthetics or books on aesthetics. However, uh, I'm very interested about, uh, I, or I'm very interested in the ways through which uh, certain questions or certain uh, uh, avenues for inquiry are aesthetically closed uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, there's a certain number of conventions of plasticity that uh, police the borders or demark the borders of what can be included within an exhibition space and uh, what immediately uh, looks like uh, you know, out of place or, mm -hmm. you know, like as uh, not belonging. Yeah. And uh, uh, for me, having encountered your work was uh, extremely enriching, enriching from the perspective of like uh, uh, making me think about uh, what is possible to do aesthetically. And uh, a lot of things that you do were to my mind or had been to my mind already foreclosed. So, uh, for instance, like... Um, the the deployment of uh, collage and uh, also like your large scale scale cutouts are uh, ways by which uh, you are also like intervening aesthetically, not only like content wise or not only like uh, in terms of like the topics and themes that no, you no, are. Very much, uh, yeah. yeah. No, very much. I mean, it's it's that I I um I recently yeah was giving a talk at I think it was a gallery vetting and and I was spontaneously just sort of talking about you know I cut up things I, I cut up history but I also cut up the picture play and for me it was um as a young artist uh choosing painting as my my me medium my vehicle um uh, to express myself i had so many problems with this history and this um with this history of this practice and um and who did it and and images i had a, such a problem with so i i couldn't um so when you learn when you any beginning painting course you take, you learn about the picture plane, which is this two-dimensional surface where you um, you suspend your belief and you are able to you know create or not create um, illusions of depth and um, and and you're supposed to be able to um, believe in that. And I couldn't. I just simply there was this like it was like. Like there was something, um, a circuit that wasn't connecting in me. And the only way that painting started to make sense to me, and this was the time when I connected with, you know, um, I have an anecdotal story about Carol Walker because um, this is, I was making this work, uh, these cutouts um, as my kind of thesis project in graduate school. And it was the first time I was doing it, but these colonial figures that are these small, um, normally, you would encounter them in a book, um, colonial um, circus performers um, from the 19th century. And I blew them up to a life-size scale. I blew them up to a life-size scale um, and then cut them out and put them in the viewer space. Because all through school, I kept hearing from my advisors, um, what does colonialism have to do with um, your viewers? What does it have to do with... Um, the US. And I was, I didn't have an answer then to that, but I thought, well, damn it, I'm going to make these things so big and put them in the space with the viewer. They have to deal with them. Um, and, um, and so this was a way for me that it was both literally cutting up the picture plane um, and cutting up painting. And then suddenly, once I cut it up, 
it made perfect sense to me. I could paint. It was, um, and 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 I wanted to paint, and I wanted to think about what um, different kinds of painting, so vernacular painting, of high, you know, the the painting in the white cube, but painting um, as a as a whole category, right? Thinking about it, um, uh, and. And the anecdote I had to share about Kara Walker was that while I was her assistant, she was doing a residency in California at the time. At the, I don't know, there was a there was a residency program at the graduate school I was at, CCA, and um, she saw this work, really was um, impressed by it, and then told me the story about how she herself was in graduate school and had her studio was full of plywood. I had made these cutouts out of wood. Um, her studio at the time was full of plywood and black paper. And this was this moment, but for the plywood, for these, the idea of the cutouts, she couldn't think of what the painting should look like. And I had painted these works that I had made in a kind of photo, soft photorealism that somehow fit with the source material. And she couldn't figure out the, um, she was like, I couldn't figure out what the painting should look like. So she opted for the black paper, which was the silhouettes, which launched her into a kind of international stardom, which is a good idea. <laughs> um, but she said, but you got, you got it right. You got the painting right. And it was like this moment of acknowledgement that I was, it was these small moments where I, I had the feeling that I was on the right track and I was on, um, that I'm trying to work, and she uh, herself, when she was in graduate school, was making history paintings where something violent was happening in the background and like nobody would get it and nobody would care. And this was this moment where she felt like she had to make painting more ambitious. And this is kind of what I was trying to do. Um, and so I, it is really much at the same time that it's about offering voice um, to those that don't have a voice. So the people in the archives that I encounter, it's also about um, a simultaneous investigation into the medium of drawing and painting and what those mean. Um, so it's like, so as the category of what is aesthetic is not without politics. So it's understanding that the aesthetics is political too, is the frame from which I've come out of. Would you say that uh, you are uh, opening up uh, a different episteme or, you know, like you are reconfiguring, uh, you know, like uh, this uh, or, you know, like disordering the episteme? Can you say more about what you mean? By that? Uh, I was thinking about this text that you uh, mentioned that I read this morning uh, about the uh, indigenous uh, uh, person that wanted to study uh, botany and uh, felt that uh, she wouldn't be able to... So basically, like, the uh, university studies that she was offered were not uh you know like it was not what she had planned and it was not matching her ambitions so basically it was somehow lacking or you know like uh basically siloing her into a certain modality of knowledge production that was unsatisfying mm. 
her perspective would not be to say uh, I'm departing from the university. Her perspective would be to say uh, the university or like what we study in the university needs to be undone and, uh, you know, like a different system uh, of knowledge needs to be implemented or needs to be, uh, you know, like mm. uh, somehow built from the ground up. Yeah, she would say that. So then the question, question would is, be, uh, would you uh, see yourself, uh, you know, like engaged in the same type of project, but, uh, you know, like dealing with art and aesthetics rather than, you know, like botany? This is in reference to, yeah, no, this, this, the, the passage. Um, by It's by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who in the 90s had a, um, I think a lot of success with this book um, called Braiding Sweetgrass and it's on indigenous no uh, knowledge and scientific um, perspectives. Um, and there's a, you know, a description, an anecdote that she shares in this chapter about um, arriving at the university um, and having an encounter with an advisor who's able to unsettle her and make her feel like what she that she doesn't know what she knows, and that her question isn't profound and important. And I think that's that's the, at the heart of it. And then through years of um, research, study, and also coming back to herself and her. Um, and and um, embracing indigenous knowledge systems um, that she grew up with and that she continued to learn, um, she realized that her initial question, which seemed naive um, and um, simplistic and not science to her advisor, was in fact um, profoundly scientific, but at the same time about all living relationships and uh, in a very pro at the heart of um what knowledge is and so i think like i just related to this passage and that's why i sent it to you this morning because um that's very much been my experience i think um going through art schools uh, the whitney program which you know to give it its credit it's the only marxist art program in in the us and uh, because they just, you can't have more, <laughs> like it's too ill. Um, so even that is is a place of so much disembodied masculine knowledge. And there's so much fetishiz fetishization of European men in this program and, um, and this type of scholarship. Um, and for me, it's, it's, you know, I'm, I think, I am interested in how the there are these other forms of knowledge and that I've been working with my hands, I've been working with painting and I've been working with drawing um, and I've been trying to develop, um, you know, this alternative way of, of speaking about the world um, that is, I, 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 that is strictly not um, scholarly. It is not um, any of these other categories, and I'm not trying to um, uh, mimic those. I'm not trying to be an anthropologist or a scholar or a scientist. Rather, um, I think our, the, these artistic mediums, these languages of painting and drawing, specifically, like those, like, they offer um, uh, uh, both a history, um, a tradition that 
um, can be recuperated to um, create something new and create a new imaginary, uh, an imaginary of resistance that um, and and and. Uh, can add to the conversation about um, what we need to do to go forward, to save ourselves. In a way, there's also like now, like this uh, um, fetishism or pornotropic grace that is like completely uh, drawn to, uh, you know, like indigenous objects, indigenous experiences, indigenous cosmologies. Uh, do do you feel that this is uh something uh that rubs against what you're trying to do? I've never heard this expression pornotropic. <laughs> it's something um, <laughs> but I, 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 I would like to credit uh <laughs> I would like to credit the author, but honestly I don't remember who coined that neologism and basically it means a gaze that is yeah. uh it's, it's others that it sexualizes mm -hmm. at once, right? So yeah. it's it others, but uh, in a sexualizing, exoticizing way. Yeah. So it's also like, um, you know, like uh, uh, a fetishistic and uh, how yeah. to say, um, covetous gaze. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I think the world is full of uh, at the moment too. It, it, it's something that I try to, I, I feel very far from this perspective um for me i'm really thinking about um that it's the you know the very communities that have been targeted for destruction historically and continue to be are the very ones that have the answers that have the answers about how not just um how to live together with other people but how to live together with the planet and and so it's not, it's like, so it's interesting to me that also that the, all of the communities in um, uh, that have been subject to oppression um, uh, in different ways all have a kind of knowledge about the center and the world that the center doesn't have about it. That's something that I just want to kind of say is something that's important. So that what... A, a, a form of knowledge that also gets created is one that's uh, for people of color, for uh, uh, people of color, for indigenous communities, for, you know, gender, let, let's just say this racialized and gendered people um, and, and, and those that have been subject to these projects. Um, they, through just the sheer necessity of survival, have had to form knowledge systems also about and knowledge of um, uh, of the center. So, you know, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's dealing with indigenous knowledge, is quoting Gota actually, but I don't know that Gota, Gota knew any um, indigenous um, philosophy. So it's like, the people that are on the outside that have been um, targeted are the ones that actually have more information because we have had to um, uh, learn to survive within a system that wants to destroy us. And it is this knowledge that allows us to actually, we have information that everybody needs. And, um, and it's to 
people that have been excluded that we need to look to right now. That, and that's something very different than I think a pornotrophic um, <laughs> uh, perspective, which I see um, in its place masquerading as this. Both, I guess, at the Italian embassy here in Berlin, um, in the context of an artist um, evening of lectures, and at the Hakave um, uh, in a program um, about ethnography, um, I, I gave a lecture um, and I talked about, I began the lecture, it was, a, both of them were about my work, um, but in order to sort of ground my work, I um, usually like to talk about the sort of history of who I am. Um, so coming from immigrants um, that moved to the U.S. in the 70s, um, yeah, part of this kind of professional brain drain that took place in the third world in the 60s and 70s. Um, and my parents, you know, all of these doctors and lawyers and um, and teachers left the third world and then started to populate the factories and the fields of the U.S. And then my parents were part of this um, group of people and and um, and also did this and took this trajectory. And I grew up in the U.S. and I've, I've for 20 years have been working on this kind of um, history of thinking about how history and archives play a, a vital role in helping us understand the world that we're living in, a world that's profoundly unequal, um, that is genocidal, that is on the verge of environmental collapse. And um, and then I, you know, in this lecture, I had talked about the fact that um, I had always been um, both the show at the Welt Museum and, and you know, I've been thinking about this question that I, I, I like um, that Donna Haraway had posed about um, what does it mean to live and work in an age of an extinction and extermination? And what is the work of recuperation? And then her answer, and then rather than giving her answer, you know, I, um, which was to stay with trouble. And this was this exhibition and this um, kind of residency I had. For these lectures, what I was thinking about instead was um, answering through um, a reference to David Stannard. And he's an Americanist who teaches at the University of Hawaii. Um, and he wrote a book that's not well known, um, as far as I can tell, American Holocaust. The only reference I've seen to this book has been in um, Sylvia Federici's um, Caliban and the Witch. Um, and in this book, uh, he has a prologue, and I summarize this prologue to, as an introduction to what, how I'm thinking about time, how I'm thinking about structures of colonialism. And in it, he talks about, and I'll, I, I hope I can remember it, if, yeah, um, properly. But so he talks about that, you know, um, uh, he describes two different moments. Um, so there was this moment, I think, in um, the early morning hours um, uh, in October, uh, I think it was October 12th, 1942, the, the, the first atomic bomb was detonate, detonated in a military test site in the deserts of New Mexico. And this test site was called the Holy Trinity. 
um, uh, or, uh, the Trinity, uh, yeah, uh, was named after the Holy Trinity. And um, then he goes on to talk about uh, Columbus landing at San, San Salvador in October of uh, 1492. Um, and so with this, uh, this rough, you know, many hundreds of year time span difference that he landed there and, um, and that both of these moments represented uh, moments of technological achievement for their countries, for their nations. And um, then he went on in this to say that, um, I think 21 days later, um, the atomic bombs were dropped um, on Hiroshima, killing uh, 30,000 people in one, um, we'll have to check the exact numbers, that, but I believe this is what he wrote, 30,000 people in one explosion um, and um, 21 years after Columbus landed on um, San Salvador, the island that he had renamed um, Hispaniola that had been New estimates had placed the population being at 8 million, actually, um, was desolate from violence, disease. Um, and um, and so essentially he what he draws the parallel to uh, our attention to is that within um, uh, Within this short time span, um, you had 50 Hiroshima's that took place in San Salvador, um, and and this he writes is was only the beginning, and he does later in this book go on to how in contemporary moments the the kinds of targeting and killings that are happening that are uh, of indigenous communities that are happening right now as we have this interview um in central america and south america and anyway so it, it was for me um a way to um, also address the time kind the kind of timescapes that i'm dealing with in my work um which um uh, it's um trying to it's very much um, about the present moment, but it's also about um, 500 years ago. It's uh, it's about um, there are there's a, there is a continuum of a logic of oppression and destruction that we are um, have inherited, and despite all the contemporary mythologies of technology technological um, freedom we are being um uh told uh, um or having thrust upon us this is not um this is not changed and so there is a kind of long i guess this is like what you know some people scholars call it like you know long durée of um of oppression and power and um that I'm trying to deal with. So it's like, I'm not trying, also I think it's very important for me to say that I, I'm not trying to deal with my identity as, as, as being South Asian, uh, coming that my parents come from a job. It's important because it, it is, that's where I come from, but it's, I, I, I don't wanna just be limited to speaking about this uh, place, uh, about that history, um, that that history actually connects 
you know, with uh, other histories around the globe. And we have to be able to make statements about um, how what happens to us is affecting somebody else. And we have to make these forms of solidarity. And so I'm trying to think through these things also in my work. Um, it's important to talk about um, the role of beauty and laughter in my work, which um, I think is crucial to the work that I do. And also it makes it accessible. Um, so I think earlier you had mentioned that my work sometimes speaks to scholars more than to art, the art world. But in fact, I think there's two audiences for my work. And there is, um, you know, um, it's often been very, like I'm very, much invested in thinking about the democracy of the image, the how to, um, that anyone can read my work. If you have a PhD and a, a scholarship in post-colonial history, then you can read more, but that everyone can access it. And this is something that's crucially important to me. Um, and I think part of the reason that it is accessible has to do with the language that, um, this goes back to your first question about um, how things can be labeled as naive. I think using a language that is visually accessible to everyone um, leaves me open to accusations of, um, or criticisms rather, uh, that the, the, the work is sim simplistic, but I think it actually has um, a profound set of, there, there are many layers to my work. Um, and, um, Part of what I'm doing, because we, we didn't talk about trauma and we didn't talk about um, beauty and, and laughter somehow. And these are really at the center of what I'm doing. So I think you cannot deal with traumatic histories without uh, balancing them. And the fact is that part of what this, um, the fact that that show in 2005 that we referenced where um, it shocked everyone, it made me think a lot about what, because I want to be, I want to have a conversation with people. I don't want to just um, turn, like, I don't want them to turn away. So it's also, it's also um, thinking about how beauty and humor um, are really important tools to deal with violence, to deal with political histories that we don't want to acknowledge, we don't want to remember, we would rather leave, you know, just go the other way. But I'm asking you to stay with these histories when you look at my work. And I'm asking you to stay with the most profound and the most violent, um, you know, histories um, sometimes. And, and then, but the way that I'm also able to work with this material myself, it, the way is that I have, there is pleasure in making and this creative process and making something beautiful, making something, um, uh, allowing myself the space to be able to laugh is r redemptive and it's part of healing. And it's part of, you know, for me, I see art as having this um, sacred function. Um, it's political, it's spiritual, it's um, it's everything. And we need um, to be able to approach, um, I don't know, I, we, I, I think we need to be able to approach very heavy topics this way too, um, with, a, with a lightness and somehow um, uh, with, 
And as, as strange as it sounds with a playfulness, um, because uh, you can't bear it otherwise, it, it destroys you. And so you have to, to be able to bear it, to be able to look, you, you have to balance it. And so I think these key, these things are key for my work. Um, and also what makes it uncomfortable for some people. Um, not everyone, but for some people, they can't handle, they don't like this. They don't like feeling more than one thing at once. Um, for them, it's a contradiction, um, but it's actually, that's that's actually the, how the world works. It's not dualistically formed. It's not binary. It is, um, it is both things at once.